I don't know quite what to make of it, but my colleagues allowed me to come out here without my stole. <clears throat> and at the nine o'clock service, I went out without my Bible. I don't know. Um, don't draw any conclusion from that. Okay. <laughs> Last summer, I posted a story about meeting a woman at a cocktail party during a fierce storm. You'll understand why it came to mind this week after considering the story you heard Violet read from Matthew. I was meeting Alice for the first time, and... and unusually interesting conversation evolved between us in a quiet corner. She was a smart professional, a a lawyer, I think. And as small talk among strangers at such a gathering under such conditions might evolve, we began commenting on the weather, and more particularly, our mutual liking of intense storms. Alice said she had an affinity for them. In fact, it was during a storm that she experienced a profound spiritual awakening. The spiritual bit had been triggered when she discovered my profession. She said she didn't speak of it with very many people because though it was dramatic in a way, she wasn't certain that, one, anyone would really believe her or two, that she should share it at all anyway, since it was such an intensely personal event. My curiosity aroused, I invited her to say more. Alice then recounted that when she was growing up on the Chesapeake Bay, her family often spent time on their boats sailing up and down the East Coast, often venturing into the Caribbean. Both parents were competent sailors and great respecters of their relative frailty in comparison to the elements. But on one occasion, they were caught off guard in a fierce squall. Alice was about 17, old enough to be a seasoned mariner and helpful to the captains, but not quite mature enough to understand her true vulnerability. And so it happened that while trying to tie down a loosened rope, the boat rocked sharply starboard, allowing a large swell to break over the side of the hull, whisking her off the deck. She didn't know exactly how long she was encased in the swirling darkness. Sheer terror, maybe ten seconds. Then bobbing up in another swell, she was set back aboard just a few feet from where She had been standing. No one else witnessed this. Her parents did not know that for several seconds they had lost their daughter to the sea. Only Alice was left in a completely astonished, bewildered state. Now, probably around 37, When I heard her tale, Alice said she was transformed in that moment, even reborn, she thinks, 
although it had taken the last 20 years to absorb the meaning of those 10 seconds. And then she was sure she would never really completely absorb it, except maybe at her death. Alice didn't understand how the equation was put together exactly, but somehow the alchemy of fear and vulnerability and rescue added up to faith. That was why she loved storms so, because they reminded her of who was who and what was what. Storms aroused the adrenaline rush of fear, but the fear brought faith. She said she knew it sounded strange, but that's how it was for her. That's how it was that she came to know God. Now, our story from Matthew reads a bit differently than Alice's. For one thing, Jesus didn't invite Alice into the water, so far as she knows. She was simply swept away. That's a notable difference that I'll come back to in a minute, but in another important way, their stories are similar, especially as they both seem to hinge on human fear. In Matthew's tale, we're told the disciples were terrified. They cried out in fear. Jesus said, do not be afraid, and Peter became frightened. All of these phrases within the 11 verses of the story. The author would have us know, in other words, that fear was a primary character. And that would have made good sense to the first century reader. After all, many of the disciples were fishermen. Fishing was a reasonably hazardous occupation. They were often on the water. Surely they had lost comrades, maybe family members, to the seas. Beyond a certain point, water was completely unforgiving. Even experienced sailors knew that just one mistake could be one's last. And for a moment, Peter was held in that predicament. Had he misplaced his trust after all and sink into the waters? As Alice discovered, in our clearer moments, we recognize that every life-saving moment is but a reprieve from the inevitable. We make uneasy peace with this by saying that if only we could live into old age with our various faculties intact, we will have lived well. In a sense, we think of it as a question of fairness, as in, it's only fair that I live to be a healthy and hearty 90 or more years. This attitude focuses our entire medical system, and I can't say I disagree with this sentiment, but I do recognize it is driven by our concern and sometimes despair over the inevitable reality of our ultimate demise. And so, to greater or lesser degrees, all of us run scared much of the time. As Scott Peck put it, many don't realize how frightened they are. They've been running scared for so long, they've forgotten what it's like not to. And the macho people who proclaim that they are not scared of anything are the most frightened of all, because they even fear their own fear. Fear is such a constant companion in the background of our being, we are usually neither aware of it nor able to imagine being without it. A woman I know had a condition that her doctor said was precancerous. And as she told me this, she threw her head back and laughed, recounting how George Carlin, the comedian, once remarked that we're all precancerous. <laughs> and so we are. Is it impolite to say so? 
Life is fragile and exhilarating. A boat on the sea is at best a precarious adventure. The sea is mighty and completely indifferent to those who float upon its surface. It would seem to defy reason that we would ever embark upon the sea with no more than an enlarged peapot of a hull to keep us above the waves. But people have been defying reason in this manner for many thousands of years. We are out of place. We are literally out of our element. And this brings me to the matter of Jesus' invitation to Peter to join him on the water. Sometimes life just happens to us like it did to Alice during a summer squall. But then there are those volitional choices we make to step out into life taking risks. In our story, it's interesting that Matthew tells us Peter is not completely certain that it's Jesus out there calling to him. Remember how he puts it? He says, Lord, if it is you, if it is you, then tell me to come out onto the water. That's a curious thing. But completely understandable. Because it mimics our own experience much of the time. At least it's true for me. How many times have I wanted certainty? Certainty when caught in a decision point. I pray like mad, listen hard, wondering if I've got it right. Have I heard God's voice or not? And at the time I was deciding, for instance, whether I should embark upon this vocation, I paid attention to this very story. By the way, much of the time, preachers like to present themselves as serene rocks of faith, models of spiritual probity and confidence, but there's often a tad of play-acting going on. I should confess that to you. You should be aware of it all of the time, especially when you look at the most self-assured types. At best, this approaches the fake-it-till-you-make-it dictum of Alcoholics Anonymous. But here's the lesson. Risking, taking the plunge, as it were, is part of what it means to be a human fully alive in relationship with a loving God who only has our best interests at heart and who seeks our partnership in welcoming God's grace, love, and justice into the world. The reality is that we are held and cherished even if we make the wrong decision, even if we doubt and it overwhelms us in our resolve. Even then, God reaches out to save us. Why is this? Well, because our lives have their beginning and their end in God, who loves us beyond our wildest imaginings. That's why. And how often do we need to be reminded of this? If you're at all like me, it's daily. It's daily. It's daily. And you'll hear it from this pulpit repeatedly because we need it so badly to be hearing it over and over and over again and letting it sink deep down into our cellular membranes. But now I want to take this one step further because of the news I woke up to this morning. learning about the violent white nationalist rally in Charlottesville in the morning's news. 
And here it is, taking it a step further. Following after the way of Jesus comes at a certain price. A price set by the demand we love the way he loves. That's the price. Christians of good conscience must always listen for this call to love. Always. Because it's there all of the time if you're a follower of Jesus. White supremacists advancing a virulent recapitulation of our nation's first sin provides us with a real-time opportunity to pay attention and to be clear with whom we stand. To step out onto the water in faith for the cause of justice because it is Jesus, after all, who calls us to stand with him among the dispossessed and victims of hate. Love the way he loves. Love whom he loves. Love the way he loves. Love whom he loves. That's our first order of business if we're followers of Jesus. What is it again? Love the way he loves and love whom he loves. What an awful but useful discovery that racism is alive and well in our nation still. How many times do we need to relearn this lesson? How many times? How many times? How many times? Over and over and over again. Will it ever sink in? Will it? It will if some who are following after the way of Jesus hear his call out on the water and they take his hand and they step out. And lo and behold, even in their doubt, and as the waves of the discouraging culture seem to overwhelm, they will nevertheless rely and trust on the one who loves them immeasurably and who has still called them to love in a like manner. The early church would have heard this story as a call for the church to step out with Jesus. as relevant today as it was then. It's as relevant today. If we learn, yearn to love Jesus, then we will risk the rough water of our current culture to stand with him. We will take on the unpleasant but completely renewing work of self-examination in these matters. Self-examination is a really difficult business to do it with honesty and integrity. To sort of stand naked, as it were, before God. I know this from my own spiritual practice. And it's not terribly useful to 
compare ourselves one to the other in our own self-examination because at the end of the day, self-examination is about you and God. You and God. And if you're like me in this matter, I will say there are things that you will examine that need to be jettisoned or admitted or confessed or adopted or embraced. And each one of those things is like taking a step out onto the water because the things you need to give up you love and hold preciously, tightly. But we say these things here in this space safely, one to the other, saying that it's the same for all of us. It's the same. And we find strength and encouragement by being together and telling one another this and acknowledging that no matter who we are, that we are, in fact, again, to reiterate, loved beyond our wildest imaginings, despite our doubts and imperfections, we are held and loved and cherished and encouraged to become what was intended in the first place. And that's what we do for each other. So this comes with a spirit of great gratitude, too, that we have this opportunity and that we can affirm, even with our doubts and fears, that God is still God and we stand securely and firmly in God's grace.